You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. As we're continuing on in Systematic Theology 2, tonight we get to talk about a word that maybe you've never said before. It's just a fancy word for something you know, but I'm going to say it, then you're going to repeat after me so y'all can just feel really smart tonight. You ready? Soteriology. Soteriology. Y'all impress your parents, your friends, your neighbors, right? What do you in the church for? We talked about soteriology. Can you spell it? Nope, but it's good. Okay, right? Um, the, the simplistic way of saying this is, how are we, what? Saved. Okay, so we're going to talk three times. So we're talking soteriology one tonight. We're going to talk about the next two a little bit. We need some more handouts. Are we out? I am so, so sorry. Let's see here. You got one extra one? Any any extra handouts we got? Raise them up if you need them, okay? We need an extra one there. Are we out? I'm trying to think here. Did you make you not make copies now? All right, Brett's going to make some more copies because he's a wonderful guy. Okay, so uh, Brett will go make some extra copies, and then in a second when he comes in here, he'll walk by. You put your hand up if you need some more, okay? So we're going to talk three weeks on soteriology. What does this mean tonight? We're going to talk about how are we saved. Kind of a big deal, right? Uh, people talk about, well, I'm saved. You go saved from what? That's a pretty good question, and we're going to try to unpack that tonight. Uh, salvation is a major tenet of Christianity, while many aspects of it are what? It's debated in the church. You ever realize that about, well, who gets to be saved? How are you saved? And what about, uh, are you once saved? Are you always saved? All those kind of things. Is, what about, does God choose? Do we choose? How does all that work? And before 7 o'clock tonight, we're going to have all those questions answered. That sound good? Uh, yeah, okay, something like that. All right. Um, without a biblical description of our salvation, we are in danger of sharing a faith of which we do not understand. What can be a danger is, is we can talk about the need for you to be saved, but if I were to say, well, how are you saved or what are you saved from? And you go, I don't know. What are we sharing, right? So deep down, we've got to say, what is it? Uh, years ago, I read a book by Stephen Prothrow. It's called God is Not One. Stephen Prothrow is a religion professor at Boston University, and it's typically who's called upon when there's a religion debate on CNN. Now, with that, do you think you would probably agree with everything that Dr. Prothrow says if he's the guy who they bring in on religion to debate on CNN? Most likely, most of you would say, probably not. You know, don't, don't think I'd be there. I love this book. And let me tell you why. He says he grew up as a missionary kid, and he describes himself as religiously confused. He knows all the stuff about different religions, but yet he goes, I'm not exactly sure what I am right now. But he does say this. He says, back after World War II... Our culture went through something that was modernism and whatnot, postmodernism led in after that. But basically this kind of mentality that uh, all religions are trying to do the same thing, and it's just different descriptions of the same God. That's kind of, if you remember, after World War II, world's in disarray, and people said we need something to kind of ground us and kind of calm us down. So the belief was this. You know what? Faith is kind of like one big mountain. And Hinduism is going up the mountain this way, and Buddhism is going up this way, and Christianity is going this way. It's the same mountain, and we're going to get to the top and realize, you know what? We're all going just different paths up the same mountain. And that made a lot of people feel good back in the 19, late 40s and 50s and 60s. Stephen Prothero came along and said, While I don't know what I believe and don't know if I can know what I believe, I do know this. It is disrespectful to other religions to assume that we're all trying to do the same thing. The reason why I say that is, it says that when you get to Christianity, 
Christianity says the biggest problem is a sin problem that we need to be saved. Buddhism does not say that's the problem, right? Hinduism says the way that you can deal with the sin problem is do more good than bad. Some of us would go, that's a problem. Why? Because I can't do more good than bad, right? But Christianity is different. And so there's all these different religions that try to do different things. And the reason why I say that is a lot of other religions, a lot of other faiths do not believe that we need to be saved from anything in the first place, that you're okay in of yourself or that you can be saved by doing good works on your own. And when we come to biblical faith, we're going to see something very, very different. I want us to start. There's really two kind of frames of this. Uh, we come to soteriology, at least how we are saved. And I'm going to start by saying it this way. God is the initiator. Okay? Now, regardless, uh, I know in this room here, we've got people who grew up in the Baptist tradition, the Methodist tradition, Presbyterian, Charismatic, uh, Catholic. You grew up non-religious, whatnot. There's all kinds of stuff all over this place. But I want us to get, at least agree on something, even though we will disagree on some of the fine little tenets of theology. I want us to start here. We cannot know God unless he initiates the connection. Amen. We've got to start there. And I believe that anybody who can open up God's word and say that you believe in it can start there. But we cannot know God unless he initiates the connection. Someone who is higher, more powerful, who brought us into this world and can take us out of it. We don't come to God on our own terms, right? We've got to meet him on his terms. Give you an example. Um, Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Mankind's coming together to see if they can build a tower to reach the what? Reach the heavens. We want to get to God on our own terms. They're building, 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 building so high, so high, so high, and it says in the Bible that God looked down on it. They're looking up at it. Look how big we built this, and God still has to look down on their best efforts. And what does he do? He separates the people because they were trying to reach God on their own efforts. And so if God just wants to disperse everybody, then what's the point of it, right? Now, if you need a handout, raise your hand really quick. Brett's going to come up to you. Raise the hand if you need a handout. I know he just didn't do that for nothing. Okay, listen. Somebody works. Oh, well, Brett, thank you. The Lord saw that service. Okay, there you go. Um, so, so with this, if we think about it, uh, Babel, they're building, right? So if God just wants to disperse everybody and get rid of them, then why in the next chapter does he call a man named Abram to reach all those nations he just spread out? Why? Why would he spread them out in the first place? One, mankind was trying to reach God on their own efforts, but God is going to start something through Abram that will eventually lead to Jesus where God will come down to them. See the difference? Connection is going to take place. But it's not because man reaches there. It's because God reaches down to them. We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the what? The author and the finisher of our faith. He starts it, right? He starts the book. He's going to end the book. He's in the middle of it. He's the author. He's the finisher. He's the beginning. He's the last. He's the alpha. He's the omega. So we even come to salvation. It's not that we're coming up with these ideas. It's something that God is initiating. So we've got to at least start there. So let's start here for at least a moment about something called common grace. Okay? Let me explain what that is. Common grace is the general kindness that God bestows upon all people, okay? Common grace is the general kindness that God bestows upon all people. So there are evidences of common grace that God gives us that are not saving grace, but just common everyday grace that you can have, okay? I'll give you an example of a common grace that God gives his people, barbecue, Right? 
I mean, we can testify to that, right? Does God only reserve barbecue for the saved folks? Nope. He gives it to everybody, okay? Barbecue's out there. Have you ever, like, have you ever been walking by somewhere and you just get a, a whiff of barbecue and you just go, thank you, God? You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not, I, I'm not, I'm not even saying it flippantly. Like, it's worship to me. I go, if, if this guy can create that, like, I, I, I'll follow him forever, okay? Like, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It, it, it's absolutely astounding to think about. In fact, um, now, now the difference here between common grace and something called special grace. Special grace is the specific mercy that God does not automatically grant to all people. Common grace is for everybody, right? Everybody, everybody, everybody gets it. Special grace is a saving type of grace that is different. And um, if you believe that God bestowed common grace as, as much as he does special grace, you know what that means? Everybody's saved. That's called universalism. That means that everybody in the universe is going to be saved. Well, is everybody going to repent? Nope. But just one day God's going to say, ah, you're in. But I, I, believed, in a, I, le- I believed in Islam. I was doing a whole different thing here. Ah, yeah, that's okay. I'm going to let you in. I never surrendered a day in my life. I never prayed. I never read the Bible. I never did anything but hurt people. Ah, that's all right. You're in. Really? And that, that's kind of, so, so get this. If common grace and special grace were one and the same thing, that means everybody's saved. But I don't think that most of us in this room would probably believe that, right? There are some people that if God said, I want you to come to heaven and you get a free ticket, I don't want to go there, right, okay? There are some people that's stubborn and rebellious about that. Now let's look at how this plays out. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to how many? All. All, and his mercy is over all that he has made. There are some things that God does in a common grace that is just good to all. When a sunset hits, all can enjoy it, right? You don't have to be godly to enjoy it. You see it just like your neighbor does. You might interpret it differently, but it is out there for all. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44 through 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the what? Evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? Now, that'd be awesome if in your neighborhood next week God's like, I'm just watering the grass all the same, folks. Okay? Like, this lot, nope, nope, this lot, this lot. You know, that, that'd be one thing. But when rain hits the ground and it's been a drought, guess who benefits from it? Everybody, Everybody does, right? So last night, um, had a friend who said, hey, I got three tickets to a Clemson ball game. Do you and your boys want to go? Now, I don't want any like, who would go to a Clemson game? Whatever. Okay, listen. Um, if you get free college football tickets, I might take them. No, I don't care what team it is, right? Okay? And let me just tell you, last night around 8 o'clock when that sun's going down, on a September night. Now, I know it's about to get, you know, it's been the fake fall and it's about to turn into crazy 95 degrees, I think, Wednesday this week or something. But last night at 8 o'clock when that sun is going down, it's just a moment I go, God, this is incredible. Like, it, that, that, there, a breeze hit me, that sunrise, that temperature was just right, right? Shorts weather, but I'm not shivering. I'm like, oh, this is good, right? And, I, and I'm just looking at all, all the excitement, and it's just beautiful atmosphere, and there's a lot of great stuff going on. And, and, and you know, we, the person who gave us tickets, they, they cooked this whole spread for us, me and my boys. We could barely walk. We'd eaten so many you know, pigs in the blanket and fried chicken. I mean, it was, just, it was just like, man, this is a good thing. But can I also tell you, when I went through that whole tailgating section, there were a lot of people enjoying a lot of stuff, and they weren't following the Lord. Does that make sense with you, okay? Like... There are some people tailgating that they, they take in and they go, man, this is wonderful. And there are some people tailgating when my friend introduced me to them, got really uncomfortable when they said what I did. Okay, like, oh, it's a pastor. You brought him up. I don't want him here right now. Now, what is that? 
when you enjoy college football, you can enjoy that as a common grace of God's goodness, whether you're saved or not. Amen. You eat pigs in the blanket and get something to eat and whatever. Like, you don't have to be saved, and you can. Uh, that's a good thing. You see a sunset, beautiful breeze come by, uh, a hammock. Glory to God. You know what I'm saying? Like these, these things, they're common grace that are good to all. Now, saved people should take those and say, what a good God we have. Amen. Man, thank you for that. Amen. Oh, I mean, I, I pray before a meal, but sometimes I'm praying in the middle of it. Thank you, God. This is so good, right? Amen. What should the non-saved person, when they take in common grace, it's calling their attention to something bigger than themselves, whether they take advantage of it or not. But God's good. God's good to us through medicine, through technology, through advancements that we've found. God, God's good to all, but yet that's a common grace. That's not a saving grace. Follow me? So, so with this, God graciously concerns himself for the quality of life for all humanity, not just his people. There are things that happen in this world today that God is gracing a lot of people. In fact, some that probably don't deserve it. And in fact, if we got honest... None of us do. But yet, when he gives us good stuff, some of us here in a little bit, uh, you're probably going to start uh, smelling some, some smells coming through the kitchen, and some of us are going to be able to partake in that a little bit. And I'll be honest, there are some days where I just, I'll just be able to enjoy a wonderful feast, and I go, man, God is good to me. Even when I have been faithless to him, he's been faithful to me. And there are these moments, right? It's common grace. He, he gives himself to his humanity. Uh, this is from one of the books we've been looking through. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote this down, but it says, Francis Schaeffer once said that when it comes to matters of common grace, the Christian must work with all kinds of people who are not Christians. Now, this goes a little bit different, right? Let me say what it means. So there are some times when you can lock arm with people in society to help out, and it doesn't mean it is a religious thing. So, like, if I see a carjacking going on, and somebody wants to jump in and help out, and they go, well, I'm an atheist. Is that a problem? I don't care what you believe in. Let's just save this lady right now, okay? Like, let's just get in here, and let's do it, right? Because it's the right thing to do. But this is what he says. When I march for the rights of the unborn, I will stand next to anyone if they share the same concern, right? So even if they're not religious, but they, okay, I'm, I'm in the general common grace area, they're for the unborn, I'm for the unborn, I'll march alongside with you. However, I will not stand shoulder to shoulder in a worship service with members of a satanic cult or sit at a prayer breakfast with Muslims because such events fall in the realm of special, realm of special grace. Does that make sense? See the difference there? So it's one thing for the common good we can align up, but when it comes down to prayer breakfast or religious movements, there's a difference because we're trying to do different things here. So there is a common grace that's given to all. But there's something that changes here that turns into the gospel call that goes beyond the common grace to what would be special grace. This is the means that God initiates his goodness to us. Now let's look at it this way. Regardless of the disagreements regarding salvation, a biblical approach must begin with God serving as the initiator. Okay? So once again, let me get down to, to that thought, that idea. That regardless of disagreements, right, a biblical approach, we must begin with God serving as the initiator. Jesus said it this way, uh, remember you did not choose me, but I have what? I've chosen you. Now what does that mean? God starts the relationship. At the very heartbeat, we can at least agree on that. Now the discrepancies and all the little fine-tuned details that we can argue about, that's fine. But at the very heart, it comes down to this. Do we believe God serves as the initiator? This is from Ephesians chapter 1. 
which starts out this wonderful book, and a lot of people really struggle with the opening verses, and I'll understand why. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We all good there so far? All right, let me show you where it gets a little bit wonky for some of us. Even as he what? Chose us. Chose us. In him before the what? For the foundation of the world. That's older than you are, by the way. Right? That we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. Now, I've circled it here, but what's the word that causes panic in some of us? Yeah, word predestination, right? Or chosen or election, and you hear these types of things. I remember one day I was talking in church, we're going to talk about election, and they said who we're supposed to vote on? Different type of election, okay? In the Bible... There will be talks of election and predestination and choosing of this kind of mindset, like Ephesians 1 says, that he says, remember that he chose us in him. He chose us. Before the foundation of the world, before you ever made a decision, he chose us. Now, it is important, because this is where some people interpret this differently. Some would say he chose us, some to be saved and some not to be saved before the foundation of the world. Some of you don't have a problem with that. You go, I'm good with that. Some of you go, mm, I don't know. I struggle with that. Some of you would say, well, what did he choose us to? Well, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. He's making the initiation call, but also this is where this is heading. That's kind of what this is. Continue on. This is what it says. In love, he did what? Predestined. predestined. Hey. He predestined us for what? For adoption. What is, what, what, what is adoption? Adoption is someone saying, I want you. I desire you. To do what? To take my name. To live in my house. To be able to benefit from everything that comes along with my name in my house. You are mine and forever you will be mine. I choose you. Does a child that needs adoption choose their parents? No. The parent says, I desire you. I adopt you. So, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the what? Purpose of not our will, but his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, with this, this is very, very challenging for us to unpack. And I, and I, I jokingly say I'm going to fix all this, but you do realize this. Theologians have been debating about these things for the last 2,000 years. I doubt we're going to fix it by 7 o'clock tonight. Okay? And while there's a lot of discrepancies that come in here I think one of the most important things that I can always do as a pastor is to try to find the common ground of which we can all stand upon and this is what I want to do thinking through this because we cannot avoid that there are certain words in the Bible that make some of us uneasy fair okay so how do we interpret that well while the role of election may be debated its presence cannot be denied that type of mindset, election, predestination, calling, choosing, those aspects are in the Bible. As much as God has places in the Scripture that says He chooses us, there are just as many places that say whosoever will come can come. And how do we find that balance? Why, why are, is it the way that it is? Now, we're going to get into some of it this week, but it's also to get your head uh, really struggling through some stuff, and we're going to look at it a little bit more next week from a different side. But at least I want you to get to this, this point. I also want you to understand this. At the heart of election or predestination or choosing communicates the shocking realization that God would desire any of us. 
Now, let me explain what that means. Um, I have a dear friend of mine I went to high school with uh, and is like a brother to me. His name is OG. Stands for Original Gangster, just in case you wonder, okay? And one day, we'd gone through Ephesians chapter 1 together, and David had gone through a lot of challenges as a kid and as an adult, different things. And, and one, one day, we'd gone through Ephesians 1, and I, was, and I said, how, how did that hit you, right? He said, and I thought he was going to say, I didn't like the way that made me feel. I don't like thinking about that. He goes, I love that. I said, you love election? He's like, yeah. I said, why do you love election, right? Like he said, well, when I was a kid, follow this, I was always the last to be picked at recess. Always the last. Always looked over. Always the last person to go on a team. But to think that God wants me on his team changes everything in my world. Now, that still doesn't answer the question, does God go, you, you, not you, not you, you, you. that, That may be your belief. It may not be your belief. But let me tell you at the heart of what election or predestination is. It's unbelievable that God would want any of us on his team. If I had the opportunity to look down at my life and say, who do I want in my family? I'm not adopting Travis. Ain't no, no way, right? Because here's the other thing, right? A lot of times people say about adoption, well, you, you know, when you adopt, you don't know what you're getting into. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you had any kid coming to your family? Did you really know what you're getting into, right, okay? You thought, oh, the last couple came out like this, and then this one came out ready to set the world on fire. Okay, right? Like, all of a sudden, why did this happen? Why did it come out? And and you don't know. Here's what, 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 what adoption is. I see your condition. I see the differences that we have, and I don't care. You're mine. This is the picture of the gospel. This is a picture of what it is. And so we can disagree and debate on all these kind of fine tunes of but but at the very heart of it i don't think election was meant for us to even determine does god say you 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 not you not you, you the fact that god would want any of us in the first place should blow our minds you know why because i know me i know me i don't know you as well as i know me but i know enough of me that goes if god really wanted somebody he'd have passed me over I don't want anything to do with you, but God says, I want you in my house. I want to give you my name. You get to come in. And so he initiates this as a father wanting to adopt children into his family. Now, realize this, that as we talk about the gospel call, that the gospel is the good news of what Christ has done, not the good wisdom of what we must do. Okay? So this word, the gospel, right? Pretty important. We talk about it all the time. It literally means these two words right here together. It means the good what? News. It's not good instructions. It's not good wisdom. It's not good set of rules that you need to keep. The gospel is good news. So you go, what's the good news? When we give the gospel message to say, would you like to be saved? Would you like your life to change? You know what you're not saying? Here's the gospel. Here's a bunch of stuff you need to do to be loved by God. The good news is this. God already loves you. News alert. God knows everything about you, and he wants you. News alert. What do I have to do? It's not in wisdom and instruction. It's not commandments. It's news. God has decided in his goodness and kindness that he sees how sinful and rebellious and dysfunctional we are, and he desires to bring us into his family. That's good news. That's exciting stuff to say, I know everything about you, and I'm not scared to bring you into my family. I know that you used to be a rebel, but you're coming in, and you're going to take my name. I know that you've gone everything against me, and you try to be the God of your own world, but now I'm saying I want you to be mine. 
That's not good instructions. That's good news. And this is why we've got to get down to the place that when we get to what God's initiating, it is about what Christ has done, not what we must do. So, if the gospel message that we proclaim sounds like this, you need to clean your act up and get to church and you can be saved, that's not the gospel. That's the law. That's restrictions. That's expectations. The good news is this. God knows you're a train wreck and isn't scared off by you. Right? God knows that you're messed up and he's still coming after you. He loves you regardless. And so when he initiates this call to us, we can see that this is what Christ has done, not what we must do. Romans 1.16 says it this way, For I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel, the good news. So the good news is what? It is the power of God for what? Salvation to who? Everyone who does what? Believes. So that sounds like the gospel call goes out there and whoever believes gets the opportunity to respond to it. And what is the saving power? It is the belief in the gospel message that can change a life. To who? More the Jew first and also the Greek. Anybody. I don't care if you're this paradigm or this persuasion or this ethnicity or this religion background. Here's the deal. If you're going to be saved, it's by the power of the gospel, the good news that you believe Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and I am one of those. This is the good news. This is the beauty of the message. So, with this, God being the initiator of our salvation. But with that, God is the initiator of our salvation, but we do have to respond to it. Okay? Give you an example I didn't write down, but it just kind of came to me. Um, if you ever read the book of Exodus, you know this, that um, the tenth plague that God does through the hands of uh, Moses to get Pharaoh's attention is called the Passover, Right? There's been locusts, there's been flies, there's been cows, there's been river turning to blood, there's been darkness, there's been all kinds of stuff. Tenth plague, Passover. Firstborn in every house is going to die. Well, that should get our attention, right? Unless, unless someone dies in his place. So, take a pure, sacrificial, unblemished lamb, and you slaughter that lamb, and you consume that lamb. No bones can be broken upon that lamb. It's got to be the best that you've got. And you kill that lamb in the place of the one who ought to die because there's sin. This, the lamb comes in and takes the place. But guess what? That lamb could have died, but if you did not apply the blood on the doorpost of that house, that angel of death is still coming to the door. Why is that? Because you still have to respond to it and do something with it. You understand this, that the blood could have been shed, but had it not been applied, you are still on watch. That God's wrath is still coming upon you. So with this, God can love you as much as he loves you. But at the end of the day, guess what you got to do? i got to respond to it, right? I know this is theology class, and I know it's a Sunday night, and I know we're kind of going through our handouts, but I also want to just go ahead and tell you this. The best things we could ever do in theology class, somebody in here might need to be saved tonight. Amen. That, that God is saying, I'm giving you this initiation. I know everything about you, and I know how messed up you are, and I know how, how, how lost and simple you are, and I have not given up on you, and I'm coming. But you've got to respond. You've got to do something with it. This is how it comes down to. We cannot know God unless we respond to his call. So he does the initiation, but you've at least got to do something with it. God gives you the gift, you got to open it up, right? You've got to do something with this gift. 
And so while he does the initiating, and I'll also say this, he does the heavy lifting of our salvation, right? He does the heavy lifting. Um, we still have to respond to his call. Ephesians 1.13, this is right after the passage where he talked about being predestined and adopted and all these kind of things. He says, in him you also, when you, what? Heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and what? Believed. Believed. Well, I thought God did the heavy lifting. What do I have to do? you got to hear the gospel and believe it. Okay? Well, if he just chooses people, do we have to do anything? Apparently you do. <laughs> well, first off, i got to hear something. And i got to hear the word of truth. There's a lot of lies out there, folks, but there's one word of truth, and that is the gospel of our salvation. i got to hear the good news, which means this. You and I, what is our call? We need to share that good news, right, so that somebody can hear that good news. And if they hear that good news, then what the call is this. So I'm hearing the good news, and now what do I have to do? I believe in it. I believe in it. Do I have to jump through these religious hoops? No, you need to believe in it. And what happens? You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You're saved. Is somebody going to take that out of my hand? No, no, no. You're sealed with what God has done. And so this is the promise. Now, we get down to saving faith, and this is important for us to understand what that looks like. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, It's for by grace that you have been saved through what? Faith. So who gives the grace? God does, right? Who is supposed to exhibit the faith? We are, right? So, so God's given the grace. We're showing the faith in that grace, and this is not your own doing. I really can't even do it on my own strength, right? It is the gift. This grace is a gift of God, not a result of what? Works, so that no one may boast. So what does that mean? It means this. You cannot work for your salvation. Can't. Uh, Islam teaches this, that at the end of your life, there's a big cosmic scale where God is going to weigh your good deeds versus your bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get to go to heaven. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you're going to go spend eternity in hell. There's a couple ways you can tip those scales. Like if you make a major sacrifice in a jihad, then the scale can tip. Or if you go to Mahat, there's all these different things you can do. At the end of your life, it's a scale thing, good versus bad. How many of y'all would like to wait to the end of your life to see if you got enough good deeds outweigh your bad? You don't grade on a curve, God? Okay. I mean, comparison to some of the other people. No, 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 no. You, what are you going to do? Well, I can't. In fact, if salvation can be done through good works, then Jesus never had to die upon the cross. It was barbaric of God to make Jesus die upon the cross if there was another way. I'd just be a good religious person. I'd go to church. I'd help out a lot of people. Then Jesus never had to die. Why did Jesus have to die? Because we deserve to. And it's either, here's salvation. You ready for this? At the end of your life and mine, one of two things will happen. Either you will suffer eternally for, your cons for what you have done, for your sin. You will suffer eternally for your sin, or Jesus has already suffered in your place. Those are the two options. Is there a third? Not the way I read my Bible. Either Jesus on the cross suffered your penalty, or that penalty still awaits you. So what do I do? Well, it's not my works. It's through faith that I can believe in that. And Protestants have these essential aspects of saving faith. I want to share it with you here. There's these kind of Latin phrases I want to kind of unpack. The notitia refers to the content of faith or those things that we believe. So if we say we have saving faith, there's got to be a content of what we believe, right? I can't believe a lot. Uh, 
I don't know why, but in South Carolina, people say this all the time. You say, are you a Christian? They will say, y'all ready for this? Well, I believe in God and everything. I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means. I believe in God and everything. What's everything? Tooth fairies? You know, Santa Claus? Well, 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 what is everything? What do you mean? I believe in God and everything, so I'm in, right? No, that's not enough. What do you believe? What's the content of your faith? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation? Do you believe it or not? It's not just I believe in something. I believe in someone. Content's got to be there, right? It's got to be true. It's got to be what we believe. Second is a census is that our conviction that the content of our faith is what? True. Let me tell you what faith is not. I hope in the end it's right. You got to own this thing, right? Like you got to go, I'm, I'm riding with Jesus and nobody, like I believe this. This is, this is true. Now that does not mean, well, what if I struggle in my faith? Well, guess what? So did John the Baptist. So did Peter. So did all these heroes of our faith. A lot of people struggled. But do you have the conviction that you believe Jesus is true? He is good. He is the way to salvation. Do you believe that? And not as a spare tire to you living your life and hoping that you get hell insurance once you die. You are saying, I'm in. I believe this to be true. And the third area is fiducia, which refers to personal trust and what? Reliance. This is you making it personal. It's not something that your grandma believes. It's not something your pastor believes or the church believes or you know most people in South Carolina. No, is this yours? Is it a personal? Is it trust? Is it reliance? Is it, I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Do you believe that? Because this is important for us to see in James 2.19. It says, you believe that God is one. Okay, I believe that God is one. Well, guess what? Even the demons believe and shudder. Can I tell you something? I believe that the demons have better theology than the average church member today. Did you know that Satan himself has memorized probably more scripture than you and I have memorized? He's quoting it to Jesus. He knows the book. Demons believe. Get, look, at the, look at the life of Jesus, right? Jesus walking through town doing all these crazy, miraculous things. The disciples go, I don't know who this guy is. Religious leaders go, we can tell your teacher, but I don't know whose side you're on. King's like, I'm not exactly sure. Demon-possessed guy see him? Oh, we know who you are. Whoa, that's the Son of God right there. Oh, what are you doing? Are you here to torment us? Please, don't, don't destroy us. Just send us away. Please, Jesus, we're begging of you. And all the disciples are like, I'm not sure if he's a prophet or I don't know what he is. The demons get it. Do you see this? The demons... We're further along in understanding who Jesus was than the disciples were, than the religious leaders were. Why is that important? Because you can believe in God and everything and still be on the way to hell. I mean, I believe that Jesus was a real guy and died upon a cross. Are you putting your trust in that's the only way? Are you saying, I identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I am banking my entire eternity on him. Or, I believe in God and everything. The demons believe in God and everything. And they will spend eternity in hell suffering for their rebellion. They shudder at the fact. To be honest with you, when was the last time most of us in this room shuddered at our theology? 
oh, God's holy. Oh, he's big. I'm so small. Oh, in the presence of God, I'm, I'm just so, I, I, I'm, I'm just in awe of the fact that I get to be in it. When's the last time you did that? Because demons do that all the time. So apparently mental belief is not enough. There's a difference between a mental kind of faith and a kind of association and a legitimate saving faith. Saving faith is a bold declaration that Jesus is the only appropriate substitute for sinners like us. This is what saving faith is. Bold declaration. Jesus. He is the only appropriate substitute for sinners like us. Can I make sure you understand this? I believe that each of our sins are so rotten and rebellious against an almighty God that if you think mere church attendance could put you back in good graces with God, you do not understand the depth of your depravity. The wages of sin is death. I told God I knew better than him repeatedly through my life, and the only appropriate punishment for that was separation for from him forever. And Jesus says, can I stand in your place and take the punishment? Can I take the wrath of God upon me? And unless I can believe that, it's a bold declaration, that only appropriate substitute for a sinner like me is that. And a genuine repentance must take place. A genuine repentance. So I have a saving faith that's got to turn into something else. Repentance. Can I tell you what repentance means? A lot of times People say, well, you know, turning over God is doing a 360 turn. Well, if you're here, you know what a 360 turn is? Uh, right back there. Again, okay, like, you know what? <laughs> that doesn't help, okay? Repentance is not a 360. It is a 180, okay? You see that? I was going this way. Now I'm going that way, right? That's what repentance means. So let me tell you what's been a missing component in a lot of testimonies that I hear in Greenville, South Kakalaki. And I, when I was seven years old, I went down front and I prayed a prayer with that preacher. He said, if I, got, if I prayed that, that sinner's prayer, I repeated after him, I got baptized the next Sunday, nothing mattered after that. I'd be saved. And you know what happened those people? They were going this path, and they continued going that path just about right here. They got wet one day at church. They never did this. They never turned. They never changed. They never repented. And you know what that means? They're still lost. I got a baptism t-shirt, took a picture of my family. I got a certificate from the pastor. It's not going to get you into heaven. Because repentance always accompanies true salvation. Many people desire a savior for sin, but they reject a Lord for obedience. We have gotten into what we would call the sinner's prayer. Do you want to trust in Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior. As I walk around this city, I realize this. Everybody wants a Savior, but nobody wants Lord. People want saving for their sins. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. And this is a package deal. If you want him as a Savior, he's got to be Lord. And now that does not mean that once you're saved, you never struggle with sin. It's not what I'm saying here. But there is a change. There is a turning point. There is a, I was going down my path, my way, following the culture, following the devil, and now I'm going team Jesus. I'm following him now. Will I fall? You better believe you will. Will I sometimes think about turning back? Oh, sure you will. But the trajectory of my life is I'm following after him. And I stumble, and I fall, and I slow down, and I get distracted. 
But if you look at the trajectory of my life, I'm still on, uh, on pace. I'm, I'm trying to follow after him. So with this, repentance is a necessary accompaniment to saving faith. You've got to have repentance there. I am sorry, God, that I have made everything about me and I'm turning around. It's got to be there. If it's not there, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. This is important for some of you. 2 Corinthians 7.10, read this verse, memorize this verse, whatever you got to do. It says a worldly sorrow will lead to a uh, repentance with regret. Godly sorrow leads to repentance without regret. What does that mean? I know a lot of people who have had a sorrow in their life in a religious situation, and they have felt a worldly sorrow, but it was not a godly sorrow. What is the difference? Worldly sorrow is I'm sorry that I got caught. Godly sorrow is I'm sorry I sinned. And there's a big difference, folks. Right? Okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If you'll help me out of this jam, though, I'll be really good, God. That's a worldly sorrow, and that'll last a couple of days. Godly sorrow is this. I want to change my life. I want a new day. I want to start something different. While not complete and exhaustive, conversion should incorporate a genuine turning from a former way of life. It's not complete. You know why? We're going to be a work in progress until the day we see Jesus. Amen? Long way to go. It's not exhaustive. Any of y'all got some areas in your life you've seen some progress in lately, and you go, oh, there's some areas that we haven't made progress in yet, right? All right, it's not complete, it's not exhaustive, but when there's conversion, it should incorporate a genuine turning from a former way of life. I heard a story from somebody this morning got, who was saved a few months ago who said, I just can't imagine going back to my old way of life. Man, I used to be in this, but I've never known the joy I have now. I can't go back to that. That's salvation, Right? I used to go this way. I'm not anymore. I want Jesus. That, that's what, what takes place. It's a difference. Uh, the Greek word for repentance is a Greek word called metanoia. It literally means a change of the mind. I used to think this way. I'm thinking that way now. I used to go this way. I'm going that way now. Our lifestyle used to be this, but now it is that. There has been a change of mind. With this, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. Repentance. This passage, 2 Peter 3.9, is in the middle of the context of people going, So when's Jesus coming back? I want him to come back and fix all this. And this passage says, He hasn't come back because he's gracious to you and wanting to make sure some of you got one more time. One more. Why hadn't he come back? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. Now, I don't know what your theology says about that, but I know what the Bible just says. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back? Because if he came back tonight, some people in this room, some people that you love, would spend an eternity in hell. That's why. Why is he delayed? To give you one more chance. Maybe one more. Maybe more. Why hasn't he come back? Just fix this. Because if he fixed it right now, you'd be on the wrong side of eternity. So he's delayed because he's gracious, because he's merciful, because he's loving. You see there in Luke chapter 22, this is the picture of it for me. Jesus is on the cross, and it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? What? Save yourself and us. I love his honesty, right? Here's this thief on the cross next to Jesus. Hey, 
heard some stuff about you. Why don't you save yourself and me? Right? Get me off this cross. Now, why? Same reason why we pray and ask God to get us out of messes sometimes, don't we? Hey, just get me out of here. One time, well, last time, last time, God, promise, I promise, promise. Get me out of this. I'll be in church on Sunday. Promise, promise, okay? Get me out of this situation. That's one guy. But the other, other guy on the other side of the cross, right? So we got Jesus here. We got this guy right there. We got this guy right here. This guy says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, what? Justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. What is he saying? I deserve the cross. You deserve the cross. But the next phrase is, but this man, the one on the middle cross, he's done nothing wrong. So in this, what's this guy saying? I deserve God's wrath. Jesus does not. It's a pretty important statement of faith there, right? I know he's not thinking that way. Pretty important statement of faith. I deserve this. He does not. And then what does he say? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, if you could get off this cross, join a church, get baptized, and give some money on your first tithe check, yeah, you're in. Right? Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in what? Paradise. He's on the cross, Jesus. He can't get off the cross. He's never going to have a chance to do one good thing with his dirty, scouting, rotten life that he's completely messed up everything. He's never going to get a chance to do anything good. And if he's not in heaven today, I've got no chance of getting there myself. You know why? That guy got there by grace, and that's the only way I'm getting there. That's the only way you're getting there. So if this guy were to live an extra day, would there be fruits of a good turn? You better believe there were. But it wasn't required. What was required? God initiated a relationship with him, gave a gospel call to him. He had a saving faith that turned into repentance. I deserve this, but not this, Jesus. And will you remember me? You only, you only, Jesus, have the way to be able to see who gets to go into heaven and who does not. The reason why I say that today for us to think about how can we be saved, who is saved, it comes down to this today. If the Bible is true, that means that every single one of us is in danger of spending eternity away from God. But God has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross of which I deserved. And he did so willingly because he did not want you to spend eternity without him. And so Jesus has suffered upon the cross and it could be in your place. How do you get that? You believe in it. You have saving faith that changes the whole trajectory of your life. And no matter how much time you have, minutes, hours, decades left of your life, not perfect, not always in step, but you should be motivated by the fact, if I was dead in my sin and Jesus Christ has brought me back to life, you name what it is for my life and I'm in with you, Jesus, from this point on. So, as we conclude tonight, I believe that every single person at the end of all history will either be depicted by this guy over here on the cross or this one right here. One is, get me out of this situation, Jesus. The other one is, I want you. I, I know what I deserve, and I know that you do not, and I'm in faith saying, will you remember me? And so, 
I don't want to take it for granted that maybe tonight some of you need to switch places on where you've been with Jesus. And you need to say tonight, I believe in you, Christ, that you were to take my place upon the cross and pray for whoever that just happened to in the back. But you could say here today, no matter how much you have sinned, you have not out God's grace for you. No matter how many decades of your life you have wasted, apparently he's allowed you to stay alive to this moment to hear at least one more time, Jesus loves you. He was willing to go upon the cross for you, and you can spend eternity with him just by faith in what he has done to be in your place. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is our hope. Let's pray. If there's anybody here tonight, at the end of our theology class here tonight, that needs to do something more than fill out an outline, but needs to truly respond in faith to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, right where you are, seated at that table, you can receive the gift of salvation. You can believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to God but through him. That you believe that he died upon the cross that you deserved, and you were willing to say, I have faith in that, and I repent for my former ways. I'm turning this thing around because he's worth it. And if that's you tonight, I would just encourage you right where you are, in your own words, just this moment, just to pray and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you loved me. I believe that you died on the cross to take my place. Place all my hope and faith in you. I want to turn my life around. Save me, Jesus. It's in your name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.